0: Our Father in heaven, we can be, I can be, so easily tempted to be impressed by the outward appearances of things, especially in the world and even in the church. So today we're asking, please show us your way. Show us your way today. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. As we come to Acts chapter 4, moving into chapter 5, as we look at this book together in term 2 during this time of COVID-19, the coronavirus crisis and the lockdown and all that's brought, it's a timely word for us as we look at God's 2020 vision for the world through the church. Not our vision, but God's vision from his two-part volume that Luke writes, God authors in Luke and Acts. Luke's gospel we've seen in term 1, we've been in there, and in the book of Acts in term 2. This is God's 2020 vision. And as we come to Luke, uh, sorry, Acts chapter 4, going to chapter 5, um, we're going to be looking at today what a real megachurch looks like. So when we think about church vision, it's so easy to think church vision is attached to usually pastors and preachers and elders' idea of, we're going to have a megachurch or something like that. That temptation can come across all of us as Christians, it comes across people really around the world to have mega things, to have impressive things and and today we're looking at what does a real mega church look like but it's not what you think. It's not what you think in that it's not about the numbers. It's not about the outward appearance. What a real megachurch looks like comes from Acts chapter 4 and 5 and the reason I'm using the word mega, I hope, I pray, will become apparent very soon because it comes from the text. We're going to be looking at today what a real megachurch looks like from Acts 4 verse 32 to chapter 5 verse 16 and we see it in three ways. A real mega church looks like this. It has mega power, mega grace and mega fear. Let's have a look, let's have a look at this, this mega church. And as we look, we need to reflect why we are so impressed by mega things, but the wrong mega things. Uh, a few years ago now, I was privileged, really privileged to be able to go overseas under current COVID-19 restrictions, who knows when overseas travel could happen again. Back then I was really privileged many years ago to go overseas and to go to Rome and to see the sights of Rome. And the one that stands out for me and probably for you if you're thinking sights of Rome, of course, in terms of impressive sights, is the Colosseum. I remember seeing the Colosseum for the first time. It's like if you've seen the Gladiator movie and if you haven't been able to go across to Rome, get the Gladiator movie when they, or get some pictures on Google and, and go and see the Colosseum. See it from a distance. When you see it from a distance, when you see it from the first time, it is impressive. And the word Colosseum is related to the other word Colossus. It's big, right? It's meant to be impressive. It's made to be mega. And when you see it, it's meant to make you wonder. But when you go into the Colosseum, perspective changes. If we go into the Colosseum and you look into the center and you can actually see because there's no uh, kind of floorboards in the center anymore, it's it's all exposed and you can see what was underneath the flooring of the Colosseum. But you actually see the Colosseum was really one big building, one mega project that was meant to project power through entertainment by death entertainment by death. It was built on the lies of power, but really power at the expense of others. Power at the taking of life. So when you see the center of the Colosseum, I think you're not meant to sit and wonder, you're meant to sit and ponder human pride and sin and seek the Saviour, Jesus. I think if you go to the Colosseum, don't wonder at its beauty. Ponder at the way in which we are so impressed by outside things and we need a change in perspective to see the heart. Our society in every way, in every part, in every time and place has always been impressed. Humans are so easily impressed by the outward things, aren't we? By things that impress us, usually big things, mega things. We're impressed by those outward appearances and the Christian church, me as a Christian, can be tempted into the same way of thinking, the same way of seeking. To be impressed by the big things, the humanly big things. This is my sin, my failings, it's my fault and even when it comes to the church. So as we come to Acts 4 and 5, today we're not critiquing the mega church per se, I don't want to critique the size of church by measures of things of numbers of people or outward appearance in that sense. But I do want us to see from the scriptures what God wants us to see, and that is this, what does a real megachurch look like? And for us, reforming church, what is at the heart of our church, the heart of our motivations? What will a real megachurch look like for us? And we see in three things, it is that mega power, mega grace and mega fear and it starts with mega power. In, in chapter 4 verse 33 we see here in the start of this episode in 433, Acts 4.33 that there is this power given through particular people by God through those particular people that are called apostles. Uh, the Greek word apostolos means sent one, these particular sent ones who are sent from Jesus. Now remember What are the qualifications for being an apostle? In the book of Acts, we're given those qualifications, and this is why we don't have apostles today. We don't have apostles like these apostles with the same power today. You see, in Acts 1, you can go back and listen to that sermon, but it's even easier. Go back and read Acts chapter 1, and you can see, to be an apostle, to qualify, you had to have been picked by Jesus... You had to have been with Jesus in his three-year ministry from the baptism of John to the ascension of Jesus. And you had to have been an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus, which is why the Apostle Paul, who gets to be called an Apostle, says, I wasn't numbered among the twelve, he says, in fact, I was untimely born. He was added later by Jesus. Uh, Paul writes that in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 8. So, So we see the apostles are a select group in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, when you see the people of God, you see the apostles who are disciples, but they're the apostles particularly. And then you see the rest of the church, often referred to throughout the book as the rest or the whole number of disciples. And so we see when it comes to these apostles, firstly, they are given mega power. It's God's mega power through them. In fact, I want you to notice here that the word mega um, comes from the word great. So if you look in your English translations of the Bible, the, te- the text here, you'll see the word great is used throughout this episode in Acts 4, 4, chapters 4 and 5. The word great is used a few times. And the first one we see is in Acts chapter 4, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles are giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. With great power. That word great comes from a Greek word, megaler, or megas. And that's where we get the word mega from. You see it? And so we see here is this great power described as in mega power. Not just a little bit of power or slightly influential, but as in mega power, like ultimate power. Huge power is given by God through these apostles. And this is a historical account. Remember, it's written by Luke, who was a medical doctor, who knew what sickness was and the difference between sickness and Perhaps the the influence or the possession of demons and Satan. He knew the difference because he's a scientist by background, a a medical doctor. And he also writes as a historian. And as a historian and a medical doctor, he writes that these powerful things, these signs and wonders done by the apostles were witnessed by everyone in public. So if you go to uh, chapter 5, you see in chapter 5 verse 12, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by whom? By the hands of the apostles. Notice this. Today, you see on Facebook and all sorts of social media channels, things done by people and mirac- miraculous things done, and it's about their platform, but the apostles never make it about themselves, and it's only the apostles, not the whole number of the church, that are doing them here. And these apostles are doing signs and wonders because God has given them this mega power to do so. Chapter 5, verse 15. So they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This is mega power. This historical, verifiable account sees believers and unbelievers witness these things in open public places. What are they witnessing? What the summary of the book of Acts is. They're witnessing the Acts of Jesus by his Holy Spirit, through his apostles. That's what they're seeing. There is mega power present. Why? Secondly, because they've been given mega grace. Go back to chapter 4, verse 32, we read this. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. That is a beautiful picture, isn't it? That is a beautiful picture. The whole number of the church, all of them, have one heart and soul. They, they have one mind. Just, they, they love one another and they share everything in common. The word common here is the Greek word koinos. So it's, it's, um, it's, it's where we get the word coin from. Your coin, your, your sharing in common, your fellowship, this is what they share in. So that whilst the apostles were given by the Holy Spirit this power, it's the whole church, all of the church, all the disciples were given grace by God's Spirit, by the Holy Spirit himself. Grace to live Spirit-filled lives to serve others. We read in chapter 4, verse 33, the second part of verse 33 following... We see that great grace was upon them all. See that word great, that word mega again, great grace. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed as any had need. See throughout here, this mega grace, this great grace, this mega grace so shapes the church, they have spirit-filled unity, ...because of the mega grace of God and then they had this spirit-filled sharing with others. There was not a single person in need among them. Reforming church, could this be at the heart of our church? Our elders pray so. The leaders of our church, the small group leaders, and ministry team leaders, we pray so. This would be at the heart of our church. And so far, as far as we've seen our elders and our our leadership team, we've seen that this is true of our church in some ways. Not to boast, but we actually see as people are in need, there is sharing. But if we're unaware of your need, particularly at this time of distancing, it's hard, we want to work hard at keeping in communication, which we're doing the best we can. Our small group leaders caring for our small groups, maybe you're not in a small group, maybe you have needs that we don't know. Can I encourage you? Let us know. Email. It's so easy. Email, quietly, confidentially, elders at reforming.org.au. You can find our contact details on our website, reformingchurchbendigo.org.au. Let us know so that you won't be in need. Well, this mega grace that is given to the church gets us to meet then this person in the book of Acts for the first time, we see this person, in fact, throughout the book of Acts, but we meet him for the first time, meet Barnabas. Meet Barnabas. Verse 36, chapter 4, verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. You see, when you meet Barnabas, of course, everyone knew him as Joseph, right? That, that's his original name, pretty common name. It's like being called, you know, in Australia, Bruce, or at least in the 80s, being called Bruce. Um, perhaps more common to be called something else, I guess, these days, but Joseph's a common name. But when you really get to know Joseph, this Joseph here in Acts 4, you really get to know him, you know him as Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, It's like people are saying, you know that Barnabas or that Joseph, that Barnabas, he's a real son of encouragement, you know? What a son of encouragement he is. It's his nickname, son of encouragement. And he gets that nickname because his character is of that. I mean, when you look at Barnabas again and again throughout the book of Acts, this is what you see. You you see that this is Barnabas, the same Barnabas that when Paul gets converted, no one wants to hang out with the Apostle Paul when he gets converted. No one, because he was a persecutor of the church, he was a religious terrorist against Christians, except Barnabas. Except Barnabas dies. Barnabas goes to hang out with Paul and Barnabas is is actually very compassionate and kind towards Paul. We, We go to Acts chapter 9 and you look at verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, this is Saul who became Paul... When he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. It was Barnabas also that's known as a good man. Uh, Full of the Holy Spirit and humanly speaking, uh, he's the one who gets Paul into mission work. So go to Acts chapter 11, verse 23. Acts 11, verse 23. When they saw, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, this is Barnabas, and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he, this is Barnabas, verse 24, was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a good, great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he had found him, brought him to Antioch for the whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Look at Barnabas again and again, because it's Barnabas also, who's the person who gives people second chances, who gives grace to people. And we go to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15, it's where we see Barnabas and Paul actually have a disagreement And they were disagreement because there was a colleague and his name is Mark and Mark's a bit flaky and he failed and and he let the team down earlier and Paul says, you know, you you can't keep letting the team down, Mark, but Barnabas wants to give him a second chance. So Acts 15 verse 36, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit to the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work, and there arose a sharp disagreement. So they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. Now they get back together in the end, and even Paul, we know later, uh, commends Mark and says, "Yeah, I need Mark. He's a great colleague. So it's all good in the end." But here we see again and again. Point is this: Barnabas really is a son of encouragement. He really is that kind of guy. He's been given mega grace, and she, so he shows. Mega grace to others. He gives away again and again for gospel work. The gospel of grace has changed everything for Barnabas and the church. Now notice this, it's not communism in terms of what Barnabas is doing. He's giving away, he sells a field and gives it away. It's voluntary, it's not forced, it's not even requested, it's part of the church culture it's part of Barnabas's personal culture because the gospel has changed him. The gospel has changed everything for the church. Which makes what happens next so serious, so significant. What happens next, as we see going into chapter 5, is mega fear. And the reason is because of what happens to Ananias and his wife Sapphira, because of what they do. We see in chapter five, verse one, Ananias and Sapphira, they're a couple in the church, and they do what Barnabas does. They they perhaps they saw him and in awe they see it looks impressive, right? Selling a field and giving all the money to the work of the gospel. Wow, that looks impressive. And although that it wasn't at the heart of Barnabas's ministry, you know, doing that, he did lots of other things as we saw, they fix on this thing. They want to look impressive, right? And so they, like Adam and Eve, are co-conspirators and they concoct a plan. They plot a plan to deceive the church by showing their righteousness on the outside, which is really self-righteousness, which Jesus rails against in the Gospels. He calls that hypocrisy. They plan to be hypocrites, intentionally so. And that is so deadly. And we need to notice in chapter 5 verse 2, the problem here is not the amount they give. It's not that Ananias and Sapphira didn't give as much as Barnabas. That's not the issue at all, in fact. The problem is, they claimed, when they look at Barnabas, he sells a field and gives it all. They said, yeah, we sold the field and this is all the money that field cost." Now Peter and the other apostles, the whole church, they would know field prices, they'd know acres and price per hectare and, and so perhaps something's a bit fishy and a bit funny about this because you sold that field, right? Yeah, and this is all of it, right? Yeah, it's all of it. Something's not right. They claim, in their hypocrisy, this is all the money, we're giving all the money, right? They're still allowed to keep money, They're still led to live off money. They're still led to own fields. But the claim is, we are this righteous, this impressive by giving this much. Except the truth is, verse 2, they kept back for themselves. And that kept back for themselves is repeated in verse 3. This is the issue saying, yes, we're giving this much, but we're actually not, we're lying. And we're keeping back for ourselves. And look at the Apostle Peter's response, verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it at not your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. Here, Satan fills the heart of someone who ought to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean to be filled? It's not a second pouring or a second baptism. There's only one baptism in the Spirit, one pouring out. That's in Acts 2, once for all. Like the cross, there's only one cross of Christ, once for all. There's only one resurrection of Christ, once for all. There's one baptism of Christ, once for all. No second baptism. If someone teaches a second baptism, they're wrong according to the Bible. What does the Bible say? There's one baptism in the Spirit. Go to 1 Corinthians and read that. But what does it mean? The difference between baptism in the Spirit once for all is filling with the Spirit, when you look at that language in the Scriptures, means obeying God, being filled with His things and not with something else, obeying Him fully, submitting to Him, submitting to His Spirit. And so we see here, Ananias is not submitting to the Spirit of God by being filled with the Spirit. Instead, he's being submitting to Satan and Satan's influence. And here Peter points out to what we've already seen: holding all things in common does not mean Jesus' disciples can't still own things. Doesn't mean there's anything. In fact, there's nothing wrong with being a disciple of Jesus and happening to be wealthy. Nothing wrong with that at all. The wrong, the issue here is to be deceptive, to be a hypocrite. You can use your God-given things to use with the God-given wisdom that He gives you to do what you do with it. But remember, being God-given, that is by grace, mega-grace means we're to think in terms of grace. Don't think you can lie to God and deceive God on giving. God sees all. So Peter makes it very clear, giving was always voluntary. He didn't even need to sell the land. Ananias did not even need to sell the land. It wasn't asked of him at all. But Ananias and Sapphira made it into a show and tell for others. And worse, they tried to lie to the Holy Spirit himself. Now we see throughout God's word, God desires his disciples to have generous hearts, not deceptive hearts. Of course, This episode is literally striking and frightening. It's literally striking because Ananias and later his wife are struck down dead. At both deaths, we see young men from the church come in and bury them. Why is that written? I think it's written because they're not just sleeping, right? They're not just struck down unconscious. They're dead, dead and buried. In other words, this is deadly serious. And both times, in Acts 5 verse 5 and 5.11, both times there's this repeated phrase, this repeated response of great fear. In other words, again that word, that Greek word, megas, mega fear. That's the repeated response. Look at chapter 5 verse 11. And a great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Mega power, because of mega grace, now mega fear. We're not told if Ananias and Sapphira were believers or not, genuine believers, we're not told that. Instead, what we are told is a warning for our hearts, for our church and for Bendigo and beyond. You see, we see at the end of this episode, in, in verses 12 to 16, chapter 5, verses 12 to 16, we see following this are signs and wonders, again, through the power of the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit, by the hands of the apostles, we see this is done. Remember back that, that uh, before and in, in the previous sermon we heard from from the previous section, the apostles had prayed to God to stretch out His hand, to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. We saw this in Acts 4 verse 30. And Jesus does that, He acts. Signs and wonders are being done. And as they hang out in Solomon's portico, which is their favorite hangout spot, we see that they're doing these powerful things, these mega powers happening, all have been given mega grace and this mega fear now settles over everybody so much so that perhaps even um, the rest of the church, we see the rest, the language is used, the rest of them don't even get that close to the apostles at this point because of this mega fear because there's this reverent awe and fear of God happening amongst them. And yet the people hold them in high esteem. It's so not fearful running away fear they're fearful and looking. Because they've seen not impressive things in buildings, not impressive things in terms of numbers. What are they seeing? An impressive God at work. This is the result of God giving mega power, mega grace and mega fear. And at the end of this, verse 14 of chapter 5, here's the end result even further, that more than ever, believers were added to the Lord and multitudes of both men and women. This does not turn people away. In fact, a fear of God... Is compelling. A fear of God amongst a community of believers, the church, is compelling to those outside for them to consider Christ, trust in Him, and come inside. This is a summary of Jesus growing the church by His Spirit through His apostles, mega power, mega grace, mega fear. This is what a real mega church looks like. And so the question we have is is that at the heart of our church? What about the heart of our church? As we finish, the conclusion, the big idea of this conclusion is this. This is our prayer, the the prayer of the elders of the reforming church, the prayer of the small group leaders and the ministry team leaders, the wider leadership. Our prayer is this, that we would be a a church at heart shaped by a mega God. That is what a real mega church is. Not measured by how impressive it is, but shaped by how mega and impressive God is. As a church, we're a few things. There's a few distinctives about us as a reforming church. I've only got four, but it's a whole heap, in fact. If you want to go to a website, check them out. But for example, what, what is distinctive about us? We're a Presbyterian church. What does that mean? It just means we're, it's our governance. We're shepherded by elders, in plurality. In fact, we work in teams. Our leadership is in a team of elders It also includes a team of small group leaders, ministry team leaders. Our board of management is a plurality, it's a team. What else is distinctive about us? We're a reformed church. We celebrate this, we love this, we embrace this, which just means we're a church that loves the doctrines of grace, mega grace. We are sinners, we need saving. God gives all the grace. We can't do anything about our salvation. He gives all grace, which means he gets all the glory, that's the Reformed Church. We're a Bible-focused church. Not just Bible-based. Not to critique that too hard, but we're not just based on the Bible to bounce off and do our own thing. We're Bible-focused. Everything is to be read through the Scriptures. And we're a Gospel-centered church. thats That means not any other lens we read the Scriptures through and not any other lens do we see is so important but the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And yet... And yet, having said that, do you know, and you you do, I think, it would still be easy and tempting and sad in our sin, in my sin, to so deceive ourselves and attempt to deceive others by having a Christian life of show. To want to be distinctive by what we show on the outside even a show of generosity. COVID-19 is here. It's the coronavirus crisis. Let's tell, let's show and tell everybody how impressive we are. There is always a great temptation for the church to flex our figures, isn't there? Or flaunt our figures, or even fiddle with our figures. We have so many people watching us online, we could say. We have so many coming because we're giving so much away in food and care, we could say. We are so generous, we could say. Maybe we are. Maybe churches are. But here is our danger, brothers and sisters, reforming church, the wider church, bending on beyond. Here's our danger to make our ministry one of show and tell. Giving from a showy heart rather than giving from a generous, humble, quiet heart. It's easy for us, isn't it? For a church our size, a reforming church, you know, um, we're a small, smallish church. Uh, I don't want to give any other words to describe our size, even. I'm hesitant to do that. But it's easy for us to critique the mega church because we're not a mega church by numbers. But that in itself would be a sin at heart of looking at the outside alone and being deceived rather than at a desire to have a heart shaped by a mega God. And you see, deception is sin. Lying is a character trait of Satan, never God. God is truth, and Satan always wants to bend the truth and convince you and I to do this, but it always leads to the grave. Satan cannot but lie, his whole life's project is actually about lying and God cannot lie for he is the truth. See Ananias and Sapphira in this episode, the punishment of their own predetermined deception was death. God hates hypocrisy and Satan is the head of hypocrites. When you see hypocrisy, you see the influence or filling of Satan. When you see the truth, you see the influence or filling of the Holy Spirit. Ananias and Sapphira were being punished because, not because they were just imperfect, but because they were being intentional, intentional hypocrites. Here is the warning for us, Reforming Church. Here is the warning for us, Reforming Church family and friends. Jesus has come to pay the punishment for sin... So now we need to trust in him, rely upon him, repent and rely on his payment for your sin today. Satan, he's full of lies, but Jesus is full of grace and truth. John chapter 1 verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, this means for us, church, instead of looking to be impressive, instead of wanting to be seen by others, the gospel will change everything, won't it? Yes, it will. The gospel will change everything. The evidence of God's grace working in our church life is that we would truly be a mega church of mega power, mega grace and mega fear because we live and love, we live for and love, a mega God. Our prayer is that we'd be a church not of being consumers, but rather of being consumed by our love for Christ. That we would testify, show in our life, our joy in Jesus in word and deed. It wouldn't matter how great a preacher I am, would it? It wouldn't matter how great a preacher I am. And I'm saying I'm not that great. I'm just saying, imagine, imagine if I thought or someone thought I was a great preacher. It would not matter. It wouldn't matter. A lick of difference. How great we set our church is if we are not known for our genuine and generous love that is shaped by Jesus himself. We have no credibility in our region of Bendigo and beyond unless we are shaped by a mega God who is Christ. The outworking of this would be seen. What's this look like in application? Let us dream together. Let us pray together as a church. Imagine what this would look like for us. I think it would look like something like our third membership vow. See, when you become a member of a reforming church, we take membership vows. Our third vow reads like this Do you promise to be a faithful member of the church, serving others as part of the body of Christ, submitting yourself to the leadership and guidance of the church, and giving of your time, your talents, And your treasure for the work of His kingdom as He enables you. You see that? It's as God enables you. As He gives you mega grace, we can truly be a mega church of mega grace to others, particularly people in need, materially, spiritually, eternally. Galatians 6 verse 10. So then, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See, we, want, we actually want to love God and love people in our church and in Bendigo and beyond because God has first loved us and given us grace in sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sin, died for our punishment, our failings, our hypocrisy, our lies, our sin. Trust in him today as we love God and love people and make disciples, which is what Jesus tells us to do, love God, love people and make disciples, may it be there's not a needy person among us. Not as a metric or measure of our strategy, but because of our humble and quiet generosity. There isn't a set amount of Christians that we're to give through the local church The only measure is this, joyful generosity in Jesus. This is a picture of God's people then and a picture of God's people now as part of Reforming Church with all our failings, with all our sins. You know what? I'm forever thankful. I'll always be thankful, grateful to God for your generosity, Reforming Church. I'm not going to boast too much in you. The Apostle Paul says often he boasts in others. In the church, I boast a little bit because we boast, of course, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But just for a moment, we can be grateful to God, thankful to God when we see generosity in the church. Because that is the way God has designed it. A church that is generous with joy in Jesus, in, in, in participating and in fellowshipping with, being in common with God's saving work on earth as God saves people, a church that does that is part of his work in making a new alternative community to the world. We will pray that our church life is about making disciples, is about loving people in mutual care, and is about loving people in the mission of God by proclaiming, teaching, preaching the gospel. Which means we won't be like the world because the world doesn't need us to be like the world, the world needs us to be like Jesus. We will be like him, our mega God. We will be like Christ our Lord. Let's pray we will. Let's pray. Our God and Father, you have shown us Jesus, for Jesus is the shape of generosity, because Jesus is the person of God's grace. And so, God, we thank you for Jesus Thank you that Jesus paid the punishment for our sin. Thank you that Jesus is the picture of our generosity. And we're praying now, we're asking that we would be generous in truth, and grace, in the gospel. Generous that there would be no one in need among us. That we wouldn't be hypocrites, but that we'd be filled by the Holy Spirit. Going to our needy world so that others can know salvation in Jesus' name too. For we ask this in the mega powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.